And I want to talk about this morning, what, is it, what does it mean to have a church with the Holy Spirit? The church and the Spirit. A Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led church. What does that mean? What happens when we really embrace the work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit into the life of our local church? What happened in Acts chapter 2, many of you know this, the, uh, it's a familiar passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is an amazing first two chapters, by the way. Acts 1 and Acts 2 are just an unbelievable first two chapters. Luke is telling the story of the people of God becoming the family of God. And and, and in the first chapter, I mean, Jesus ascends into heaven. That had to be a little shaky for them. I mean, to see Jesus kind of ascend and leave them with this great mission. Go to Jerusalem and wait for me there. And you'll, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So they had this weighty leaving, and they had this heavy promise on them as they are. And they do exactly what Jesus said. I mean, this is the first time, I mean, this is a, a, one of the biggest miracles in the Bible is they actually did what Jesus said. They went back to Jerusalem and were waiting for him. That's a, that's a, that's a miracle, right, when people do what you ask. And so they do. They're obedient. You can imagine their hearts are all troubled and stirred up inside of them. They're wondering, what does all this mean? What do you mean the Holy Spirit's going to come upon us? Because he's already breathed on us once and we all fell down. Remember that? Jesus breathed on them and they all fell back. And he said, so what else is going to happen? So they gathered together and did exactly what Jesus said. They, they waited and prayed together and they were in unity, it says, which is yet another miracle that a group of people could stay in one room, one area together and be and like each other after 10 days. But they did. And which, by the way, is, is, a, uh, is something that, that I believe is super important for us to think about as pastors. Um, and this is an aside. I think we have to, we cannot underestimate how powerful unity is in our local church. And how much we have to do to defend it and pray for it and work toward it. I believe one of the reasons we're not seeing a lot of the miracles, signs, wonders, first church type things happening... It's because we are not defending the unity of our churches well enough. We're not, we're, not, we're not talking about it. We're not bringing up issues, dealing with issues, making sure that there's unity among us. Because it's in unity where God does his best work, where the Holy Spirit tends to do the best work possible is in the place of unity and people living like family, like Ross talked about. But unity is a, a, a powerful thing when it's happening. Powerful when unity is happening in the local church. And so let's pick up the story here. Uh, as you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, tongues of fire. They're speaking in strange tongues. Uh, Peter steps out and preaches a sermon. Thousands of people are born again. But then, and then, then something happens. It's almost like Luke takes a deep breath here. What just happened? The ascension, the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon people's lives. And it's like Luke backs up, pauses, taps the brake and says, now what's really happening here? What's going on here? And it says, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How many, you probably get, uh, for those of you that are in our, my traditions, I have a lot of people that walk up to me, and over the last five or six years, they'll say, Pastor Brady, we're so hungry to be like the Church of Acts. You know, we want to be like that church. 
And what they don't, what they're saying is they want to see more miracles or whatever. And I agree with all that. But the point is, is that the book of Acts is 30 years worth of stories in five different cities. It wasn't a six-month revival in some city. It was 30 years worth of stories from five different cities. Now, I've been a follower of Jesus, a real dead follower of Jesus, for about 20, let's see, it's 24 years now. I've seen almost everything in the book of Acts. I've prayed for the sick. I have planted churches. I've dealt with the demonic. I have uh, seen uh, crazy answers to prayer, miraculous answers to prayer. Uh, I've never seen someone raised from the dead. I haven't preached long enough to see someone fall out of a window, but I'm, I'm working on that. Um, <laughs> we, we all preach on the first story here, so we <laughs> keep that from happening. But uh, for, for the most part, I mean, if, 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 if most of you were honest, if, you, if you've been in the spirit-filled life for more than 15 or 20 years, you've experienced a lot of the book of Acts. And I think people lose that perspective. Hey, I want to be more like the book of Acts. Well, 30 years from now, look back in your rearview mirror, and you probably will if you're following after the leading of the Holy Spirit and you wake up every morning wanting to be obedient to God and you're a person of the Holy Spirit. You will. This is exactly what you will experience. And you are experiencing it. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in all around us, everywhere. Miracles and healings and dynamic moves of God all over the earth. If we're just paying attention and not just so focused on our micro experience, it's happening all over the world. I mean, an Iranian pastor just got released from prison miraculously last week. When you talk about Paul and Silas being in a prison cell and being miraculously released, that just happened last week in Iran. We all prayed. We're praying for another pastor in, in Iran right now. Who's, he, he's still in prison, but there was another pastor, his friend, that just got released miraculously, unexplainably, Last, last week, it's happening. I want to talk about what it really means, though. What, is it, what does it mean to be the local church? This is a, and I'm letting you in on a continuing conversation here at New Life. So what I'm going to talk about today is not a finished sermon. This is far from complete. But it's a work in progress with us. When I came to New Life, one of the things we began to talk about is, is and this is just my own language, but returning to the original formula, recipe of local church. Going back to the original foundational stones of what it means to be a, a fellowship of believers, the people of God becoming the family of God so that others can be a part. That's, our, that's language that we use here. We are, we are the people of God, which means we are becoming disciples, being discipled, and we're, we're becoming the family of God, the people of God becoming the family of God, which is the local church, so that others may be a part. I think we've got our evangelism uh, model backwards. First of all, we have to become the people of God who form the family of God before others will want to be a part. If we're winning them to a crowd or to a building or to some kind of a marketing pitch, then we have failed them already. But if we are the people of God who have become the family of God, now we have made room now for the people to come be a part of that. And by the way, that's what they want to be a part of. They want to be a part of the people of God who have become the family of God. But how does that happen? We have to pay attention to the way it was first formed. I don't think that the the recipe or the formula has changed that much. We've changed the formula, but God set something in place here for us to pay attention to in these scriptures that I just read. I just want to draw your attention to them today and let you know this is what we're working out here among New Life. We have not perfected it. We are not experts on this. We are messy on this. We are missing the mark in many cases on this. But these are the conversations, the, the kind of the, the, the ideas, conversations. So I want to let you in on a conversation that we're having on a regular basis here among our team, our staff, our elders, myself, 
and with the church. So what are the four, we, what we're talking about are the four foundations of the early church. Some people would say there's five, other people would say there's four. Let's just concentrate on the four here today. Here's number one, they were a learning church. They were, that, that's, that was the first thing that's mentioned. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. There was a, there was a strict adherence to good, sound theology. I, I want to encourage you as pastors not to shy away from theology in your church. And I know when I, what I mean by that is teaching. Do not assume that everyone in your congregation, even those who have been Christ followers for many years, really understand the foundational teachings of, of theology and what's important. Especially if you're a church that never recites the creeds, you would be shocked at how many people in your church do not know what the absolutes of their faith are. Ask them. Take them out to lunch and don't don't ambush them, but just ask them, hey, what are the absolutes of our Christian faith? What are the things that are non-negotiable? What they'll probably say, and you'll, you'll hear this, God, the Bible, Jesus, of course, and... Uh, felt boards in the Sunday school room. They'll, you'll be shocked. They'll be all over the map at what's really the foundational pillars of our local church. I, I, I believe we just can't teach on it enough. And what may seem so basic to us, you cannot preach on the resurrection too much. You cannot preach on the atonement, the incarnation, the return of Christ. You cannot, we cannot preach on those things too much. We have, to, we have to really make sure that there are deep bedrock pillars deep into the life of our church. You know, when we built this building, under what you see on the top is supported by deep concrete pillars all underneath us that are sustaining the weight and the height and the depth of this building. All around us, underneath us, are these deep concrete pillars and bedrock stones because this is exactly the, the picture that God gave us when we're planning the local church. And the, the apostles' teaching were those deep bedrock stones that he wanted to implant early in the life of the church so that when the persecution did break out against them, and it did, we know that, that persecution was coming, and God knew that. God looked him in the eye. Jesus looked him in the eye and said, um, in fact, he looked when, when, when uh, Paul, when Saul was converted, he said, I'm going to show him what he must suffer in my name. So it wasn't like that Jesus was hiding what was about to happen to him, but Jesus was very intentional. The Holy Spirit was very intentional to prepare them for what was ahead of them. Listen, pastors and leaders, listen, I'm, I say this with absolute sincerity and from some experience. We must prepare our people for tough times. We are not doing our people a favor by not preparing them for difficult times. Now, I talk about the blessings of the Lord here. I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I'm a, I'm a glass half full preacher. I, know, I believe I am. But what we've walked through has taught us something here. And that is that we, can't, we must prepare our people for the seasons of life that are sure to come. And the way you prepare your people to endure storms and rain is to make sure we talk a lot about the rock in which their feet should be planted. And Jesus used that as a picture. He said, listen, you're going to have to set your feet on the rock because the wind and the rain will come and, and will lash out. Again. He says the rain's going to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But those who will survive have had their feet planted on this rock of Christ. And this is what the apostles' teaching provided for the local church was a rock. Do, the peop- do your people, here's a good question to ask yourself, do your people know where the rock is and how to keep their feet on the rock when the winds and the rains come into their lives? Because it's not a matter of if, it's when. And I'm not trying to, just, I'm not trying to like throw a wet blanket. That's just the realities of it. There will be seasons when the wind is at, in our cells and the sun is on our face 
And all seems right. The winds and the rains are calm and the storms are over. That, those are beautiful seasons of life. And we're in a bit of that season right now at New Life where it feels like finally we're in the open seas. The wind is in our cells. The sun is on our face. And the, the waters are calm. And we're making good time right now. But it wasn't so long ago we were in dry dock with a big gaping hole in our hull. So can, can your people... In the, in, do I see this as a primary responsibility as a pastor... To do two things, to prepare them for the open, how do you navigate success and how do you navigate failure? Because that's going to happen. And this is exactly what he's saying here. One of the foundational things of the church is there has to be a deep, deep centering on the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching created this sense of steadiness, predictability. And this is why a lot of us have, you know, uh, make fun of the liturgies or the sacraments because it's, well, it seems like it's so ritual, it's so routine. You know, what, you know what I hear from the 30 and under crowd, the t- millennials, the young 20-somethings? They actually want the predictable. They're longing for something that is predictable. And I'm not talking about boring, and I'm not talking about lifeless. It can't be boring and lifeless. And I don't, I mean, did you just, Pastor Glenn just led us through... The Lord's table, that wasn't boring or lifeless. That was full of life and full of God. Yet that was 2,000 years of tradition he just brought for us. That, was, that, was 2000, that wasn't trendy or cool. That's 2,000 years old what Glenn just did. And it was full of life and full of the spirit. But it was predictable. It's where I can come and put my feet every week. When I gather with the body of Christ, it's a place where I can put my feet down. And, 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 and this is why Glenn and I actually preached the same sermon. We call it our liturgy. Like next weekend, uh, all the new lifers here, they know exactly what I'm going to preach out of. What chapter am I going to preach out of next week? Acts 19, because I was in Acts 18 last year. It, so that is, I don't have to create any buzz for that. It's predictable. Next week, we're going to talk about Acts 19. The week after that, it's going to be Acts 20. We're just, it, it, it creates a sense of order, bedrock. And now hopefully, there, a lot of them are reading ahead with me. And, I, and I, put on, I tweet a lot and Facebook a lot. Hey, read ahead with me. Read Acts 19 and study with me this week. Bring some questions to the fellowship this week. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm always saying, hey, read ahead with me. Or, or I'll, I'll, I'll take parts of what I've already studied and say, hey, here's something I'm thinking about for this Sunday. Predictability, stability, order. It's a bedrock of the church. All right, number two, this is beautiful. They were a loving church. It says that they were committed to the fellowship. The word fellowship there is a word we know that is koinonia, the gathering it's the gathering together of the saints. Koinonia means um, a gathering of the called out ones. What we may not, I may not have a lot in common with many of you. I, I'm from Louisiana. You may not be. I like LSU. You may not. It's your fault. But, it, but we may not have a lot in common. But the one thing that we do have in common sitting in this room, and the one thing you have in common with your church, is that we're, we were once in darkness and we've been called into the light. So it's a gathering of a multitude of personalities a cross-section of culture, but what we do have in common is that we've all been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light. In other words, we all have a story to tell. Let me ask you a question. Are there places where you're telling your stories? And that's what the fellowship would do. They would come and tell their stories of being in darkness. Now I'm in the light. Now I was, not, I was an orphan, but now I'm a part of this family. And it was the gathering of the called out ones. And one of the things I loved it there is that, they, that, that there was no needy people among them. I, uh, I want to I say this. I was thinking about this this morning because I'm in the middle of making a decision right now about some staff, and, and, um, and it's a stretch. 
those of you, even a church of 100, a church of 10,000, it doesn't matter. In, in this economy, in this, in this realm that we're living in right now, adding staff, adding salaries, paying for additional people, that's all a stretch for probably most of us. And it is for us too. So anytime we're do, thinking about that, uh, we are always super cautious and prayerful. But here's what I'm, I'm, I've learned. I knew this, but I'm really learning it now. There are some, there are some positions that, it, that are no-brainers to me. This may surprise you. It's not the hip, cool worship guy because you think that's a no-brainer. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I believe when you purposely invest in the widows and the orphans and the poor of your city, I, I have leaned so heavily on the scripture out of Proverbs, when you give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and he will reward you for what you've done. Here's what I mean. I'm going to tell you, this is an encouraging thing to you. A year ago, we opened a women's medical clinic that uh, has served almost 1,100 patients in a year. I mean, this is the poorest women in our city, and it's free. It's a free medical clinic, and it's, it's costing me about $15,000 a month to run it. And when we opened the women's medical clinic, I didn't have $15,000 a month. I didn't have it. But I felt like the Lord told us to do it. And I'm, I, just, I know every donor development guy would just cringe to hear me say this, but this is the truth. I've only taken up one offering, one specialized, one significant offering for the, the, the Dream Center in one year. I've taken up one offering. I've not done any bake sales. I don't have to, I don't, no car washes, no dunking booths. I haven't had to do any of that. And it's completely funded. I don't know how it happened. This month, and in fact, this Friday, sometimes in the next week, we're going to find out if we got a grant to purchase an apartment complex for homeless single moms in our city. And it's going to cost me about a million dollars to buy it. I think I got it paid for in cash with grants and some uh, donations. But it's going to cost me $20,000 a month to run it. I don't have $20,000 a month burning a hole in my pocket. But I just believe that this was the mark of this early church is they, they made a commitment to take care of one another, the most vulnerable among them, and somehow there was always enough. It says, this, listen, you know who he's talking? He's talking about people that were under a 90% tax rate here. Do you notice the people in the Roman, about, they, were, they, were, they were being taxed at 90%. So if you make a dollar, you kept 10 cents. 90% went to the governor of the region, the local magistrates, and to, back to Rome. And somehow... This early group of church followers, because they were committed to the fellowship, they just never had, it says they were never, it says in Acts, in Acts 4, there were no needy people among them. Well, how is that possible? They were all poor to begin with. Most of them. There may have been a few people that had some land or whatever, assets. But it says at the end of the day, they looked up and they were a fellowship that had no needy people among them. Because they were committed to the gathering and committed to the fellowship. And here's, here's the next thing. They, they were a worshiping church. They really were. They knew how to worship. They understood why they were there. They said they were committed to the breaking of bread. Every meal was this foretaste of the messianic banquet that they were longing for and hoping for. The messianic foretaste. They were gathered together to remember their past, to celebrate the Christ that was among them, and to look ahead to a hopeful future. But they knew how to worship. They worshiped together. They, they, they made a big deal about the presence of God. And we talk about the presence of the living God here. We talk about coming into his presence, getting out of the way so that people can find Jesus, creating atmospheres where people can truly worship and be and having these encounters with the living God. And that takes a long time to get that into your culture that we're here to worship, not to entertain, but to worship. 
Because that's one of the hallmarks of the early church. When they came together, you didn't have to hype them up. I was actually at a church one time. This is, this is great American church stories. I was at a church one time, and I was walking in. I was speaking there, and there was a guy on the stage yelling and screaming and throwing T-shirts out in the crowd. And it was just like a regular church service. It wasn't like a concert. It was, I was there to speak, and I said, who is that guy? The guy he's our hype guy. Our what? Our hype guy. Is that his title? Is that on the website? You're a hype guy? Listen, here's, here's, I, I say that. I came back and told our team, please, God, don't ever let us become a church where we have to hype people into worshiping. We should walk in as worshipers and walk out as worshipers. Worship is who we are. It's not a 30-second set of songs, 30-minute set of songs at a Sunday. It is a, it's our, it's a, who we are. It's our expression. It's, I walk in as a worshiper. I am a worshiper while the scriptures are being taught. I'm a worshiper while we're taking the table. Uh, at the table, I'm a worshiper all the time. And, and we have to call our people to a place, a lifestyle of worship. And then they were a prayerful church. It says they were committed to prayer. They were committed to four things, to learning to loving, to worshiping, and to prayer. So I got asked this question the other day, um, and I thought it was a great question. It made me stop and really think about who we are at New Life. And so I'll ask you the same question. Is your church a praying church? That's a big question, and it's not an easy answer. So if the answer is, do we pray at church? Yes. Do we have timed prayer meetings that we have organized for people to attend? Yes. That's not the answer to the question, though. Are you a praying church is a bigger question than that. Yes, we pray at church. Yes, we have prayer meetings. Sometimes we have 24-hour days, seven-day-a-week prayer for stretches of time in the World Prayer Center. But that's a deeper question. The man that was asking me this question was very wise, and he said, No, Brady, do your people pray? It's not do you have prayer meetings. Yeah, I've been to prayer meetings where there wasn't a lot of prayer, by the way. Have you ever been to those? A lot of talking and singing, but it wasn't a lot of praying. It wasn't a prayerful atmosphere. Are your people a praying people? That, that's a bigger question, and I'm not here to answer it for you. I'm just saying I think it's a good thing to explore. Have you created a praying church? Is, is your church prayerful? Is the first response to any kind of conflict or any kind of roadblock, is it to stop and pray? Do your people, because here's how you tell if you have a praying church, how do they respond to a crisis? What's their first response? That's how you know what's happening in your church. Are they a prayerful church? All right, so here I'm going I'm to write. Here's a question. I want you to get your uh, phones. I want to kind of take a poll here. I want to kind of find out what, where we are as a church. So I'm going to put these questions up. Here's uh, what's strongest at your church right now, you think? And, and, and a lot of these, you can have all four of them as strong, but I want you to pick one that you think is the strongest at your church. The teaching, the community, the koinonia, the, the, there's real community at your church. Uh, the worship, the presence of God. I'm not talking about the band. I'm talking about uh, calling pe- people in an attitude, an atmosphere of worship or prayer. So which one is the best? I'd like our new lifers to respond to. I'd like to hear your response. So te- everybody text it in. So there's text. There's the code. Text the code to. So the code is 184. Y'all got all that. All right, y'all already got it figured out. Nobody's big and good at prayer. Well, there goes teaching. Hey, we go. okay. We only got 29 so far. Let's get about a, 100 here. So text that code to that number. Okay? See which one is the strongest in your church, you think. 
Just pick one that's the best, you think. Get about 50 responses so far. Now, this does not surprise me that prayer is dead last. Let me tell you why. All, all you pastors know this. The least attended meetings at your church are prayer meetings. <laughs> it really is. It's true. I can, I can stand, I can stand in, in our churches. I think we are a praying church. I think we're a prayerful church. We're becoming a praying church, but we are very prayerful here. But it's interesting that people, people don't respond as well when you call them to gather to pray prayerful gatherings. But if you ask them to come to hear teaching, if you ask them to come to a potluck, or you ask them to come to a night of worship, it's different. I wonder why that happens. I wonder why we have not created this passion. Because that was a, that was a mark. I mean, even when Paul was in prison the first time, it was the local church gathered for a prayer meeting when the earthquake happened, and he, you know, he's released from the cell. And I mean, that, that, this is a mark. This is something we've drifted away from. Prayer. That's, that's interesting. That that would be, well, it's, it's actually revealing, isn't it? That that's the least thing in our, in our church that's strongest. And it's pretty even on teaching, community, and worship. That's a good conversation for you to have right there with your team. Are we a prayerful church? Are we a praying church? And I'm not here to give you all the ideas. I'm not here to be the answer guy today. Because we're still trying to answer the question ourselves. How do we create a culture? How do we teach our people to pray? How do we draw them into a place of prayer? Help, how do we help them understand that prayer is so powerful and they would just pray? So that's, that's interesting. So I want to I write, I want to just have talk for a moment about what happens. And obviously the prayer, obviously we have some work to do with the prayer foundation in all of our churches. All of us have some work to do, it looks like. If you're being honest with your responses, we have some work to do. But if all four of these things are in place, what happens when these four foundational stones are in place the way they were in Acts chapter 2? It seemed like, now again, they were a very young church. There were no trained seminarians. There was no, now, by the way, there were some educated people, very educated people leading the local church in Acts chapter 2. So let's not think they were all foolish and unlearned. That's not at all the case. There were some very learned people leading the local church, but they didn't have any experience. The, the idea of church was always a part of the Jewish tradition. The gathering of the temple was what they would have called church, the gathering in the temple to hear the rabbi teach the scriptures and sing the psalms. So this is so a lot of people believe that this was the birth of the church. It was not the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2 is not the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the spirit-empowered church. And there is a big difference. It was the, the, the infilling, the personal infilling of the Holy Spirit in, in people's personal lives that changed the idea of church in Acts chapter 2. Church was always a part of the Jewish culture. The gathering on the Sabbath to hear the rabbis teach, uh, all of those things were very much a part of the Jewish tradition. But in this case, the Holy Spirit now has, has come and changed the game. So what's happened? what happens when these foundations are in place and the Spirit has breathed into people? Here's, here's one First thing, there's an anticipation for the miraculous. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe, A-W-awe. It's a very good, it's a fascinating Greek word, which means a fearful expectation that the living God might come among us and do something unexpected, unannounced, and unpredictable. That's what awe means. That's a three-letter word that's got a big meaning. But it was this fearful expectation that when we gather... 
that the living God might somehow come into our natural realm and do something unpredictable, unannounced, and, and, and this, is, this is the expectation they had. Well, let me ask you a question. Pastors, let me ask you this question. This is a great question. Because we can't expect this from our people if we don't expect it ourselves. Now, I'm, I, I preach every, almost every Sunday like you do. I lead meetings through the week like you do. I'm a part of small groups like you are during the week. But let's be honest with one another. When was the last time that you were on your way to the gathering with a fearful expectation that God might come among you and do something unannounced and unexpected? Now, we have an order of service. We have a list of things that we think... We, I don't, there's nothing wrong with planning. But I think sometimes we get married to that order of service and we've left no room for the unexpected or unannounced or unplanned. And I think, I think if, if we don't arrive at the gathering with any sense of awe, we shouldn't expect our people to arrive. That, by the way, this is why our people arrive late at the gathering. We call them lazy. No, there's just nothing to expect. They already know what's going to happen. What, you know, every great move of God that we've seen in our modern times, people were arriving hours early. And it's almost like that created extra anticipation, right? So there's an anticipation, a leaning in. It's, it's no wonder that when you find a group of people that are leaning in like that at the beginning, there's more stuff that happens. The awe, the, the presence of God goes up exponentially when people are leaning in and anticipating. When they come to the gathering expecting the unannounced and the unplanned. Again, I'm not talking about sloppy, and I'm not talking about things that are out of order. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, could God in his sovereignty do something among us that we did not expect? Are we, do, we, do we have any hope for that? Like leaning in, hoping today that the person we've prayed for for so many years would be healed or maybe today that prodigal that we all know about in our church, that maybe today their hearts would turn toward God. Or maybe today that marriage that has been shaky, that they would lean into one another again and their hearts would connect one more time and they would give marriage another chance. Those are the kind of things I'm beginning to expect. God, I, I pray today that, that that woman that I prayed for at the altar so many times who is struggling with the cancer, Lord, I'm anticipating today she may be healed today. Lord, I'm anticipating that the prodigal may come home today. Father, I'm leaning in and, and, and anticipating today that the broken marriages in our church, they're wearing their church mask. Everyone knows their marriage is broken, and they, but they're wearing that church mask again today. I pray that they would become vulnerable to one another, and most, but most importantly, vulnerable to the work of the Holy Spirit and allow their marriage and their home to be salvaged somehow by your, by your spirit and by your power. When was the last time we leaned in like that and anticipated all those things happening. I think as leaders, we've got, to, we've got to lead in anticipation for what God might do. We used to call it faith. <laughs> I call it anticipation. Faith is anticipation. You know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I can, if you want to put that on the bottom shelf for people to really understand, faith is simply an anticipation. I anticipate this. I believe it and I anticipate what God may do. I wrote, Annie Dillard wrote this. I love this. This is beautiful. I'm going to read this to you. It's going to come on the screen, I think. But you need to Google this quote and use this quote at your church. Okay? I, 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 when I read this to our church, it, 
it, it did something in the life of our church. There, I got more response about this. This is a quote from Annie Dillard. Listen to this. Why do people in church seem like a cheerful, brainless tourist on a package tour of the absolute? All right, let's start over. That's pretty big. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Annie Dillard. That's what I'm talking about, anticipating. Coming in with a sense of awe and reverence. Believing that God is at work still today. That he cares about what was happening in our lives. Just leaning in with our eyes open. Number two, I think when these four foundations are in place, there's a generous community that happens. I think this may be the greatest miracle of the entire book. That a group of diverse people, they actually loved and served one another. You know, I, I uh, just the last three Sundays we've received communion after my sermon and in the last three Sundays I've had people turn and face one another like we did today and, and receive the elements together I have had more feedback than anything we've ever done in the last six months but people have said Brady I just met somebody that sits behind me every Sunday I didn't know they're I didn't know this about them I didn't know they were sick I didn't know they had a prodigal I didn't know they're I didn't know this they were sitting right next to them and they sit in the same we have little neighborhoods in there you know we have little neighborhood 10, neighborhood 11, neighborhood 8, little neighborhoods. You lived in the same neighborhood for all. And this is true about our culture, right? My house, I have a little thing in my car I hit. The garage door goes up. I can pull my truck in, hit it again, down. I go in through the garage. I don't have to see my neighbors, so I don't want to. I really don't. I, can, I hide. I got tinted windows and automatic garage doors and doors that lock from the inside. That's the culture most of us live in in America. What happens when we start living like that, it starts to seep into our lives that we really don't need one another. That's what it begins to tell me. I don't need my neighbor. I don't even have to know my neighbor. I have satellite radio inside my vehicle. I can get all the news and information, weather, sports, right there. I I have food in my house. I can go through a drive-thru. I don't even have to get out and go in and get food. I only have to deal with a short minute from a, a lady at the drive through window if I want food. And I can roll my window up very quickly. Down, up. Food in, out. So we've created this, this dependence. We, we're, we're, not, we're not dependent on anyone. I told someone the other day, I think if, uh, if my driver's side window ever broke, I might starve to death. That's, that's, that's a sad testimony, but that's true. We're actually trying to eat stuff that we actually cook at home now. Remember those days when you actually cooked stuff at home and ate it? We're back to that at our house. But what happened in the local church, they, they completely understood. They, they, were, they weren't just needing to be around one another for fellowship. They were in a, in a crisis place in their culture where they absolutely depended on one another. 
And I'm not so sure that's not going to happen in our generation again, where there will be such oppression and resistance that we're going to, we're, we will look up one day and realize we really do need one another to make it. That's true in a lot of other cultures in the country. The U.S. has been, we've been spared from that. But there, you go anywhere in, in the afflicted church, the persecuted church, and they will tell you, I cannot thrive, I cannot survive, I cannot live unless my brothers and my sisters rally around me, unless we share our goods one with another, unless we can lean in on one another, because there's no one else I can lean in on without threat of death, arrest, or persecution. I, I love this um, Christendom, an early church writer, Christendom, let me read this to you. This is what he thought when he saw the early church. He says, this was an angelic commonwealth, not to call anything of theirs their own. Forthwith, the root of evil was cut out. None reproached, none envied, none grudged, no pride, no contempt was there. Now, I think he's being a bit romantic, obviously, because we know that early, we keep reading the book of Acts. A lot of that was there, actually, but he had an idealized view of the church. And he says, the poor man, I love this, the poor man knew no shame and the rich man no haughtiness. What a beautiful picture of the local church when it's operating well. The rich and the poor can sit right next to each other and the poor man feels no shame and the rich man feels no haughtiness. There's a sharing some people have said, well, doesn't that sound like socialism? Nope, socialism is government-mandated. This is Christ-mandated. And there's a huge difference, by the way. You take Christ out of that, it is socialism. You put Christ in, it's the kingdom of heaven. We are to, I am supposed to give. Here's what, we say this a lot, and, and I mean this. If you have a need, and I have the resources to meet that need, I want you to live under the assumption that I'm going to do that for you. If I have a need and you have the resources to help me, I'm going to assume you will. In our American culture, you cannot talk about that too much because we are very much iPhone, iPad. What beautiful marketing that is. It feeds right into the thing that we believe about ourselves, that we are the center of the universe and everyone else is paying rent. Self-centeredness, self, listen to this, Self-centeredness is the greatest evil of our age. And that, by the way, is, and most people say, hey, we didn't broken sexuality. No, it's self-centeredness. That's what creates the sexual brokenness. By the way, you can't be married and be selfish. Amen? You want to you get rid of your selfishness? Marry. Because you can't be married and be selfish. The number one cause of divorce? Not adultery. Self-centeredness. The number one cause of sexual brokenness is not lust. It's self-centeredness. Living for yourself. iPhone, iPad world we live in. We live in, a, in an age of increasing narcissism. And so this is what, this is what the local church was designed to break this idea of self-centeredness. You cannot live in a family, as Pastor Ross beautifully said this morning, we must live in a world where we're dependent on one another, where we're serving one another. And that consumer mentality, you know what the cause of it is? Self-centeredness. And we feed it. What can we do for you? We always ask that question, right? How can we serve you? 
We should also put a second question on that little label. What can you do to serve us? <laughs> how, how about giving that to first-time guest? How can we serve you? What can you do to help the church? What are you bringing to the party? I mean, right off the bat, we already confront that, right? Hey, we're here to serve you, no doubt about it. I already made, like I said Monday night, I've already made up my mind to serve. I am eager to serve. First Peter 5, we are eager to serve. What are you eager to do? <laughs> because there's a generous community here. All right, here's the third thing, and this is where we'll stop. The third thing that I saw at work in the local church when all these foundation stones are in place is there's an attraction to outsiders. One of my favorite scriptures in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, is that it says, with glad and sincere hearts, and it says, there was glad and sincere hearts among them, and daily the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Lots of people getting saved. I got to tell you a good story. Um, It happened last night. I wasn't going to say it last night because um, it, it happened last night, and this young fellow may have been in, our, in the congregation, but last night we had a young fellow walk in over there at the prayer center who was distraught. And he didn't know why he was there. He just kind of walked in, dazed, hurt. And as we unpacked his story, it was brutal story. He was in a, he's in a bad spot. He still is, and we're with him right now, but... I just thought last night, he come wandering in like this, kind of wandering in into the church. He thought there was a prayer meeting going on. There was a reception, but it was turned into a prayer meeting for him. I just thought that's a beautiful picture of the church right there where people just come wandering in, hurt, broken, messy. And and you can see it in his eyes. And we... Colonel Willis and I were with this guy, and we could see that. All he was saying was, are there people of God here who've become the family of God, and can I be a part? That's why he, he didn't know to ask that, but that's what he was asking. Are there people of God here who have become the family of God, and can I be a part? I'll tell you what happened last night, and uh, Pastor Jack would never tell you the story. He would never do it, but I, I, I got in late on this, because this has already kind of played out a long way before I walked into the room. So when I walked up, Pastor Jack had his arms around this guy like this, just smothering him. And Pastor Jack's about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, this guy's about 5'7". So this guy's face was right there, and his, right, ne- right, right next to his heart. His face tucked in, tears coming down his face. And Pastor Jack, who didn't have to do that, I mean, Pastor Jack is a pastor. This is what I love about him. He's the real deal. You know, he had his arms around this guy, just praying over him. Like that. They go arms around him. I went, that's the church. There you go. Broken, the bruised. He's messy. He's got a list of issues. But he he was just looking for someone just to. And that's what happens when these foundational stones begin to be put in place. People will just drift in. It, almost, it happens almost every Sunday, especially in the last year. Almost every Sunday. Uh, almost. And I would say it probably does happen every Sunday. I just don't know about it. But I know about it every Sunday. People walk in and they'll sit and go, they just start sobbing as they walk in. I don't know why they're crying. They just are overwhelmed. Sob. And they're there. They just kind of drifted in. 
I, I do believe in going out and getting the lost sheep. I do believe in going out and calling, compelling those to come into. I, I believe all that. I'm not. But let me just tell you something. This is what you will see in your local fellowship is the Holy Spirit will just draw men. They'll just walk in the front door looking for the people of God who've become the family of God and they want to know if they can be a part. I want, I, want to, I want to make room for them, don't you? Let's pray together today. I want to pray over our churches. Can we put that, what was the, what was the final tally on that poll there? Let's pull it, can we, it's about the same? Can we pull that back up real quick? Because I really want to pray that our churches, I think it's probably the same. Let's pray, this is a good lunchtime conversation that I hope continues how do we build a church that is prayerful and a praying church? How do we talk and teach and model prayer to the degree that we can, next year when we come back here, that that, that number is off the chart, that we've learned how to create a prayerful church? Let's pray together, and we'll look at it later. Father, thank you. We are so thankful. And we are aware today of how much we really depend upon you. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be a learning church and a loving church. Lord, a church that is generous. I pray you would help every one of our churches, Lord, create open space, empty spaces, empty rooms for the new to come, new people to come, for for those who are outside the family, the orphans of our cities, and Lord, to come and find a part of the family. And Lord, we bless your name today. We thank you so much that you've called us to return to the original idea, the original formula, the original convictions of the local church. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Hey, well, I hope you're having a good time. I hope this has been helpful for you. We are really enjoying being with you. I had several of our staff and leaders come up and say, you know, we're getting so many good conversations. We're having so much interaction. That's exactly what we wanted to create was a culture where we could talk and leave room and space in our schedule to talk. And, um, and so I, I'm so glad you came. And so, by the way, tonight is, uh, is going to be really, really strong. Uh, David Perkins and Johnny are going to lead us tonight. And, uh, and you're going to, we're, we're going to see, the, we're in the beginning stages of a real prayer movement among our students here. And most of our prayer meetings are led by college and 20-somethings here. And they lead the way. And it is because over the last decade, David Perkins and John Egan have created a culture here of young people praying. And so tonight, you're going to see uh, what that means. And, and David's going to lead us tonight and show us how do you create young people in your church that know how to pray. I'm, I'm really hopeful that that bar is going to increase at New Life for us because of how many college and 20-somethings are being brought up here in a culture of prayer. They lead the way. All our prayer meetings are led by young people here in most of them. And we all sit on the back row and cheer them on. And um, so tonight you'll see what that means and how that happens. And, and, um, and you'll, I think you'll leave inspired that the future is very bright. I mean, the church is going to be just fine. And uh, our young people are going to be just fine. And the young people of your church can be just fine. So I hope you come tonight and be a part of that and uh, not leave out early because it's going to be strong tonight. So anyway, hey, y'all go to lunch. Uh, hope you find a good breakout in the afternoon. We'll have our church planning breakout in here with me and the three guys. And um, have a great lunch, all right? Sure appreciate you.